0: From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Bobby Bascom. The U.S. now wants back in the Paris Climate Agreement, but the world is
2: different. They have a tremendous chance, Biden and Harris, to bring their environmental justice and racial justice agenda on the domestic level into the international agenda and engage much more constructively taking care of those that are being impacted by emissions that came out of the United States.
0: Also lawsuits and urgent pleas to protect critically endangered northern right whales.
3: While the situation is really dire right now, we can save these animals. We know what needs to be done. We just need the political will to do so and are very hopeful that with the Biden administration, the tide will start turning for right whales.
0: Those stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
1: From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Poppy Bascom.
0: And I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, the U.S. is now headed back into the Paris Climate Agreement thanks to a letter President Biden sent on the afternoon of his inauguration. It was among a dozen executive actions and orders, including many aimed at reversing former President Trump's environmental rollbacks. But time, the climate emergency, and the world have moved on and the U.S. can't simply re-engage using the old Obama administration playbook. Joining us now from Berlin, Germany, to talk about what this means for global climate progress is Jennifer Morgan, former climate advisor to the German government and the executive director of Greenpeace International. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Jennifer.
2: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: So now that the United States has sent that letter requesting to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, what should it start working on right away?
2: Well, the first thing it needs to work on is what it's going to do domestically in the United States to both reduce the emissions that cause climate change, but also bring a lot of benefits along with that, including new jobs, clean air. So that means investing in renewable energy. That means getting any recovery package that comes in to deal with the horrible COVID crisis to be going towards zero carbon emissions laying the groundwork for that kind of infrastructure. That also means, though, um, stepping up and supporting the most vulnerable countries in the world that are suffering already from the impacts through aid, through capacity building, through technology transfer, and really putting science at the middle of all of it.
0: So technically, the U.S. only came out of the Paris Climate Agreement in November, but de facto, of course, Former President Trump pretty much sat on his hands for the past four years. What opportunities has the U.S. missed in terms of the international negotiations as well as things that we could do at home over these past four years?
2: They've missed quite a lot. I mean, I think as far as really countries that are moving forward to solve problems together, for example, you know, dealing with the impacts of climate change themselves. So adapting to those impacts and knowing how to do that in a way that takes care of the most vulnerable communities in their countries. They've missed a lot of the, you know, parts of the renewable energy boom, which again is around self-sufficiency, energy independence in countries where you just have seen renewables now competing or outbeating fossil fuels in many countries around the world. I think they've also really missed a sense of collaboration that's moved forward that had to, because it wasn't only that the former Trump administration was not wanting to move along, they were opposing it all along the way. So there's a sense of solidarity. And I think that the administration now needs to reenter that whole area with some humility, because others had to move forward, they couldn't wait, and did, not to the extent that was needed, but certainly quite a bit.
0: Drill down for me uh, for a bit about some of the damage that was done so far by the United States leaving the Paris Climate Agreement.
2: Well, for one, I mean, I think there's two areas there. One is that it just makes things much harder. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you have a, a White House or you have a chancellery or a, a prime minister that is leading and moving forward in, for example, removing fossil fuels from different banks, you know, whether it be the World Bank or whether it be bilateral banks, then you can move quickly together on that versus if you have someone that's trying to pull you back the whole time. I think the other area is that the former Trump administration gave a lot of cover for those other countries that also, that wanted to pull back. Brazil, for example, and Bolsonaro, or the Russians, for example, or Saudi Arabia. And that again is kind of, it was more like moving through mud to make progress rather than being on that, you know, Sustainable astroturf.
0: What about uh, some of the financing that's part of the UN process here? What promises had the U.S. made in the past for financing climate change research, uh, helping with adaptation and such? Do we need to play catch up with now?
2: The U.S. definitely has to play catch up. I think both in funding that it had committed to the Green Climate Fund, which is the fund that was created in order to support poor and developing countries, both in dealing with the impacts and adapting to climate change and to moving forward and and implementing solutions. You know, you had a whole effort that was underway in the research field, not only to fund research, but also to allow scientists to do their job and not stop them from doing their job. I think, you know, another area there really also that is not necessarily part of Paris, but kind of, which is around financial regulation. You know, we can't have just voluntary initiatives anymore of banks committing not to fund this or that. We need a financial system that actually treats climate risk and potential stranded assets as a material risk and regulates around that. And I think that's another area where the U.S. is going to have to play some catch up, but can certainly play a really important leadership role under Secretary Yellen.
0: So the advent of the Biden administration takes us back, in some respects, more than a decade to the advent of the Obama administration with a major climate talk coming up. For Obama, it was Copenhagen. This year, we'll see a major set of talks in Glasgow The Obama administration never put together a task force for all the federal agencies and such to figure out what to do at Copenhagen. What advice, if any, do you have for the Biden administration to prepare for the upcoming session at Glasgow?
2: Well, I think uh, this is going to be a very important meeting. My advice would be to take the approach that they're doing on the national level, which is to have it across all the different agencies from transportation to interior to you know, energy, obviously, and through Special Envoy Kerry do that on the global level, so that it's not only them bringing, which is a precondition, a much stronger reduction target for the U.S. to bring back into the Paris Agreement, but it is also about bringing climate and, for example, removing away from fossil fuels into all of U.S. foreign policy, And I think going into Glasgow, it's not just a one-off meeting. It's really the moment, I think, for world leaders to demonstrate that they're about the well-being of people and the planet over this short-term economic growth. And I think they have a tremendous chance, Biden and Harris, to bring their environmental justice and racial justice agenda on the domestic level into the international agenda Oftentimes in the United States, but also around the world, you see polluting industries, fossil fuel development happening in low-income, often people of color communities. And that needs to obviously stop. And those communities need to have the funds to help restore. On the global level, think about a small island. Think about a small farmer in Africa that is suffering from drought and has no longer any kind of, of income and oftentimes will then migrate and contribute to conflict somewhere else. What is the responsibility of the United States? And I would even say the companies of the United States that have caused so many of these emissions to taking care of those people and certainly not their fault. They had nothing to do with the problems that are being solved, uh, but the U.S. is a key player in taking care of those people. And that's lo- known as dealing with their loss and their damages.
0: So let's look across the international environment and and tell me how you think that folks in that community are responding now to the United States getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement and what kind of position, rather than trying to be seen as just as a leader, should the United States be trying to position itself as?
2: Well, I think, I mean, I, I can't tell you how, like it was like a collective sigh of massive relief of the fact that you have moved from a climate denier White House to an administration that has said that climate is one of four priorities moving forward. I think that people are curious, countries are curious of how the U.S. is going to reengage in this. They will look for that credibility on domestic action and transforming the U.S. economy. And I think they would say to this administration, the world's different than it was four years ago. And they're ready for partnership with the U.S., but also noting that the U.S. can learn a lot from other countries right now and what they've been through in, you know, the European Union, although it's not as strong as it should be on the science, it has a green deal. It is moving forward and moving to a zero carbon economy. So a readiness, though, a readiness, a curiosity, but also a bit of not trepidation, but just, you know, nervousness of... Uh, of a U.S. that comes with exceptionalism when actually I think the U.S. needs to show a lot of humility right now.
4: By
0: the way, what's going to be the toughest opposition for the United States getting back into the international climate agreements, not just at home, but abroad?
2: Opposition abroad, I think, will come depending on what the U.S., uh, what the Biden-Harris administration does at home. So I think... There will be opposition if the administration were to reenter and start to kind of tell others or encourage others to do more when it hasn't done its own work at home. I think there will be opposition coming from the most vulnerable countries looking for the support coming from the U.S., um, even kind of the back payments of what the U.S. hasn't yet paid And, you know, if the U.S. and the Biden administration is really driving the way that they are saying, then then maybe they'll even see some opposition from some of the former Trump allies like the Saudi Arabians or the Russians, because optimally this administration needs to be driving the world away from fossil fuels in every single way that it can, as quickly as it can. And so a measure of what success would be that the opposition would be coming from those fossil fuel producers.
0: And just to be clear, the three largest exporters of liquid hydrocarbons in the world are Saudi Arabia, Russia, and the United States of America. There's a distance to go there politically for the U.S. How does the U.S. get there?
2: There is a distance to go, and I think it's um, the U.S. gets there by setting a pathway for the phase-out of fossil fuels providing a just transition for workers that are currently in that sphere, ramping up their work on other solutions, working with communities to do that, and doing that together in a unifying way. And I think there's no choice now. The science is so clear. We have so little time. And so it's that kind of joint work and collaboration with that set goal that I think the U.S. could provide some leadership on.
0: Jennifer Morgan is the Executive Director of Greenpeace International. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Jennifer.
2: Great to be here.
1: How President Biden is reversing Trump administration climate and environmental rollbacks. That's just ahead on Living on Earth.
0: If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Bobby Bascom. So, Steve, uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement is a huge step forward for the United States to get back on track when it comes to working with the international community to tackle climate change.
0: It certainly is. And President Biden has been wearing out his pen since the 20th on domestic environmental issues as well, undoing much of former President Trump's environmental damage. I understand you've been looking into some of those actions for us, Bobby.
1: Yeah, I have. Um, Shortly after the inauguration, Joe Biden signed more than a dozen executive orders, several of them about the environment. Among them, he directed the Interior Department to review the boundaries for several national monuments that were shrunk by the Trump administration.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, famously, the Bears Ears National Monument was made about 85 percent smaller to allow uranium mining and drilling for oil and gas.
1: That's right. Um, President Biden, though, has said all along that he wants to put a halt to new oil and gas leases on public lands. And he took a first step towards that by placing a temporary moratorium on oil and gas leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And Mr. Biden canceled the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline.
0: Yeah, well, that's been a political football for a decade. Protesters even went to jail in a bid to get President Obama to kill it. Those activists said that burning all the carbon-heavy tar sands oil that would be transported by Keystone XL, would mean game over for the climate if we were to allow the pipeline to move forward.
1: Mm -hmm. And Native American groups have been protesting it since day one. They're concerned that a spill could damage um, ecologically sensitive and culturally sacred areas along the route from Alberta, Canada to refineries on the Gulf Coast. So President Obama eventually rejected the pipeline, only to have President Trump give it the green light. He said it was important for the economy and job creation, which, again, revived the controversy. It got bogged down in court battles, and with all the delays now, it's not a huge priority for the oil industry, especially given the low cost of a barrel of oil today. Um, So, you know, to some degree, you could argue that this is a symbolic gesture by President Biden, but he's certainly signaling his intention to take the issue of climate change seriously.
0: Yeah, and he says that he wants the U.S. to be carbon neutral by the year 2050.
1: Exactly. Such an ambitious goal. Um, But to help us get there, he issued another executive order telling federal agencies to look again at uh, methane rules and fuel and building efficiency standards.
0: Yeah, and so maybe an end to the standoff with California about their stricter fuel efficiency standards for cars?
1: Probably so, yeah.
0: Yeah, but still, I feel like we've spent the last four years reporting on the dozens of environmental laws and regulations that former President Trump rolled back or weakened. Mr. Biden and his team are going to be very busy.
1: Oh, gosh, they certainly are. And you're right. The total number is more than 100. But with a stroke of that pen back on Inauguration Day, President Biden also moved to reconsider Trump rules that, quote, were harmful to public health, damaging to the environment, or unsupported by the best available science. So I think we can expect the new administration to move quickly to address the climate and the environment more broadly. Of course, changing the rules for federal agencies can and often does take years. But there is another way, the Congressional Review Act, It allows a simple majority in Congress and approval by the president to void rules that have been completed during the last 60 legislative days of a previous presidential term. And Steve, you've been looking into this for us, right?
0: Yeah, some possible targets are some last-minute Trump administration rules that cut food stamps for some 3 million people. And there's another that exempts the USDA from certain environmental reviews that could promote increased logging in national forests. And, and then there's the widely criticized so-called Transparency in Science regulation, adopted just a few weeks ago by the Trump EPA. Now, this deceptively named rule would force researchers to disclose confidential medical data used to study health effects of pollution and toxics. But there's a risk, as rules are taken off the books by Congress can't be reinstated in substantially the same form, and that that could tie agency hands in the future. So for more, I want to turn now to Romani Webb. She's a senior fellow at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. Welcome to Living on Earth, Romani.
5: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Now, Romy, the so-called transparency in science rule, also known as the secret science rule, was finished by the EPA just a few weeks ago. Why is this rule getting so much attention as a possible target for the Congressional Review Act?
5: Yeah, so the inaptly named science transparency rule, what it actually does is restricts the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to rely on scientific studies where the underlying data is not uh, publicly available. And to the layperson, that might not sound so bad, but a lot of the studies that EPA relies on, of course, are public health studies where the underlying data is confidential medical information that simply can't be disclosed. So it would really restrict the type of studies that the EPA can rely on and has relied on in the past to adopt some of our most important air pollution controls and, and other regulations. You know, this adoption of the the secret science rule or the science transparency rule really generated a lot of controversy for that reason. It's very unpopular amongst environmental organizations and other sort of science advocacy groups. And so definitely that is one that's being talked about as a possible target for disapproval through the CRA process. It's very unlikely that a Biden administration or even another democratic administration would want to adopt a rule like the science transparency rule. So, you know, that substantially similar language is less of an issue there.
0: And while it was named science transparency, some consider this a science inhibition rule. In particular, for years, industry has contested the, the health effects of particulates, trying to get at databases where people had given up their health records to, to demonstrate how deadly particulates are. EPA, I believe, made some findings ignoring a number of studies that, in fact, had confidential medical data in them. So this is kind of a big deal.
5: Yeah, definitely. And the EPA rule, the science transparency rule, or the secret science rule, does not come out of nowhere. This is a rule that actually Congress tried to legislate this requirement tried to enact legislation that would impose this requirement on EPA multiple times in the past. All of those measures were unsuccessful. And so now that the Trump administration has had control of the EPA, they've decided to do it through an agency rulemaking
0: process. So there's a new rule that the uh, now-vanished Trump administration had put forward that set a 3% threshold for regulating industrial sources under the Clean Air Act. In other words, exempting many, many, many industries because no one industry is so huge. How might the Congressional Review Act be used to get rid of that?
5: Yeah, the, the rule you're talking about establishing the 3% threshold really means that only the electric generating sector can be regulated by EPA under the New Source Performance Standards, the Section 111B and D process. So it effectively excludes from regulation all those other big sources of emissions that fall just below the threshold so the oil and gas sector which is upwards of 2.5% but just doesn't quite make it to 3% and many others. So there is you know some talk that the Congressional Review Act could be used to disapprove of that rule you know this substantially similar provision the prohibition on adopting substantially similar rules is giving some people pause in terms of what that would mean if this rule establishing the three percent threshold was disapproved through the CRA process. Might that limit the adoption of other regulations that future democratic administrations want to adopt? So that one, I think, is less of a slam dunk than the, the science transparency
0: rule. Now, what about the rule that came out of the Trump administration that essentially set financial cost-benefit analysis for cleaning up the air and pretty much ignored co-benefits such as, you know, health benefits, saving lives. There's some effort to get this repealed, I understand.
5: Yeah, I think the cost-benefit analysis rule that was finalized by EPA relatively recently is one that is certainly getting attention for potential review under the CRA. You know, it has been incredibly controversial and, and widely disparaged on the basis that it does prevent consideration of code benefits, which are a key benefit of many of our rules and have played an important part in the basis on which many of our rules have been adopted.
0: And in fact, doesn't it in a way contradict the Clean Air Act itself, which says that strictly cost-benefit is not applicable or should not be paramount uh, when there are health considerations?
5: Yeah, I mean, there's you know quite complicated rules around how economic considerations should factor into rules adopted under the Clean Air Act. Certainly, the Clean Air Act is not solely an economic statute and is not intended to be one. The agency cannot solely consider economic factors and in some cases is prevented from considering economic factors when adopting rules. So, you know, this attempt by the Trump administration to further inject economic factors into decision making, but to restrict the nature of of those factors that can be considered is problematic on multiple fronts.
0: Ramani Webb is a senior fellow at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. Ramani, thanks so much for taking the time with us today.
5: Thanks, Dave.
1: Conservation groups recently filed an emergency rulemaking petition asking the U.S. government to expand protections for North Atlantic right whales. Once hunted to near extinction, right whales supposedly came by their name because they were the right whale to hunt. They move slowly through the water and tend to float once killed instead of sink like most whales, making them easy to retrieve for their blubber and meat. Once hunting was banned in 1935, the population of right whales began to slowly bounce back, but today the population is again in free fall. Ship strikes and entanglement in fishing gear are killing more right whales each year than are being born. Less than 400 of these giant marine mammals remain, making them a critically endangered species. For more, I'm joined now by Kristen Monsell, a senior attorney for the Center for Biological Diversity, one of the groups petitioning the National Marine Fisheries Service for added protections for right whales. Welcome to Living on Earth, Kristen. Thank you. Happy to be here. The Center for Biological Diversity, along with other conservation groups, has filed a lawsuit against the government asking for the protection of northern Atlantic right whales. What actions are you arguing for in this lawsuit, and and how will it actually help the species?
3: One lawsuit is about vessel strikes. So vessel collisions can kill or injure right whales in a few different ways, one through blunt force trauma that can result in fractures or blood clots or hemorrhages. Another is through direct propeller strikes that can result in blood loss, lacerations, or amputations. But science tells us that when ships slow down to 10 knots or less, they are much less likely to kill a right whale. And the agency has a rule in place right now that requires vessels over 65 feet in length to slow down in certain areas at certain times of year to prevent right whales from getting run over and killed by ships. And we petitioned the agency in 2012 to expand the scope of that rule so that it applies in more areas and that it applies to smaller vessels because there is Situations in which right whales were struck by much smaller vessels. And the agency has never responded to our petition, despite a host of evidence indicating that the rule, while it's effective in the places and times that it applies, it's not effective enough. It needs to be expanded both in time and space and to the vessels that it applies to. And how difficult of a sell is this for the fishing
1: industry or the commercial shipping industry that travels in this area? How would reducing speed limits impact the boats that are going through there?
3: The shipping industry didn't like the rule when it was originally enacted, in part because they, you know, claimed... It would result in a significant economic burden on the industry, but we know since reports that have been issued since the rule went into effect that the impact was much less significant than they had claimed it would be. There's also an exemption in the rule in the interest of safety. If the captain of the boat thinks that it would endanger his or her crew to slow down in a particular area because of ocean conditions or other factors, they Don't have to slow down. And, you know, frankly, I think we can't afford not to enact these protections because if we don't, we really risk losing the species forever. And whales provide incredible benefits to the ocean and our planet as a whole. For example, their poop is incredibly nutrient rich. It helps to fertilize phytoplankton which are the base of the food chain. You know, the whales really do sow the seeds of healthy ecosystems. And in addition, they also act as carbon sinks. Whales accumulate lots of carbon in their bodies during their lives. And when they die, they sink to the bottom of the ocean, taking all of that carbon with them. So we really risk significant disruption to the ocean ecosystem if we, we don't save these species.
1: So ship strikes are the obvious and acute problem for right whales right now that you're trying to address. But, of course, there are a lot of problems in the world's oceans. Can you tell me, please, about some of the other challenges facing right whales and how this potential change in boating speed would factor into the bigger problems facing their habitat as a whole?
3: Right whales are unfortunately facing a slew of problems, including entanglement in fishing gear And that's another issue that we are trying to tackle through a variety of means, including both the courts and administrative petitions to the National Marine Fisheries Service. And like ship strikes, there are very common sense measures that the agency can take to help protect these animals from getting tangled up and seriously injured or killed in commercial fishing gear including closing important right whale habitat areas to vertical lines and promoting the transition to ropeless fishing gear, which is a type of gear that has no static vertical line running through the water column only during active retrieval would there be any vertical line. So you essentially eliminate the risk of entanglement by eliminating the rope in the water which is something that we're we're pushing for. And and how
1: is climate change affecting um, the whales? I mean, that's a much bigger problem, obviously.
3: Yes, it, it is. A lot of the problems right whales are facing now are in part due to climate change and warming waters that are shifting where their prey is. So we're seeing right whales go into habitat areas where they haven't traditionally been found. So there are no protections in place in those particular waters, which is increasing their rate of entanglement. And one of the effects of that has been that there are now significantly longer calving intervals. So the time period between when, you know, one whale gives birth to a baby right whale and then does it a second time. A healthy right whale will have a calving interval of about three years now that calving interval is up to about ten years, which is another reason why the species is doing so poorly mm-hmm. gosh so
1: so many challenges for them it's um it seems really overwhelming and daunting, I should think
3: it is, but you know these whales are are resilient they came back from the brink of extinction once we stopped hunting them. And they can do that again, provided we stop running them over with ships and entangling them in fishing gear. Well, right now, what are the long-term survival projections for right whales? Um, Sadly, it's it's not looking good right now. Scientists estimate that if current trends continue, the species could be functionally extinct within the next 20 years. While the situation is really dire right now, we can save these animals. We know what needs to be done. We just need the political will to do so and are very hopeful that With the Biden administration coming in, the tide will start turning for right whales and we'll see the population increase again, rather than the significant unsustainable decline we're seeing right now.
1: Kristen Monsell is a senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. Kristen, thank you so much for taking this time with me today.
3: Sure, no problem.
0: Coming up, some ancient African wisdom on bringing people closer to each other and their environment. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping
2: boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
1: And I'm Bobby Bascom. Well, it's time for a trip beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Hey there, Peter. What do you have for us this week?
4: Well, hi, Bobby. As you know, every once in a while, we get an invasive species story that sounds like it's straight out of either the cartoons or the sci-fi world. Well, in this country, we've got the Asian carp. You may have seen video of these 10 or 20-pound fish who breach way clear out of the water because they go crazy when they hear boat noise and getting hit by a 10 or 20 pound fish coming out of the water can be memorable. Maybe even more memorable in Europe, there are catfish species that can weigh up to 600 pounds.
1: Oh my goodness.
4: These are enormous catfish and they've perfected a technique to sort of lay out on a sandbar, half in the water, half out of the water and wait to pounce on an unsuspecting pigeon. Yeah, I'm talking about fish eating birds, not birds eating fish. This is going to be concerning for the pigeons, although having lived in cities for a good part of my life, I've really got no qualms if an animal wants to eat a few more urban pigeons. But when you have that big an animal come in as an apex predator at the top of a food chain, things cannot go well for the local ecosystem.
1: Well, what else do you have for us this week?
4: An analysis by the BW Research Partnership conducted on behalf of several clean energy advocacy groups links the COVID pandemic to the loss of 400,000 clean energy jobs. That's 12% of the clean energy workforce, and those jobs have all been lost since the month of March.
1: Wow, that's a lot of clean energy jobs. I mean, before the COVID outbreak, we were hearing that The renewable energy sector was one of the fastest growing job sectors in the U.S. economy. What happened here?
4: Well, like so many sectors of the U.S. economy, it just crashed to the bottom. Most of those 400,000 jobs, about three quarters of them, are in energy efficiency, retrofits and the like that are generally regarded by a lot of people as optional things. And when the economy is on the edge of collapse, you tend not to do the optional things There are other job losses in wind farms, solar farms, and a lot more. And the BW Research Partnership says that we may not see full recovery in the clean energy sector until the year 2023.
1: Mm. Well, like so much of our economy, it's going to take some time to bounce back. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again soon, Peter.
4: Okay, Bobby. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website, LOE.org.
0: History will likely recall Joe Biden's speech at his inauguration on January 20th, both for its inventory of America's present woes and the challenging solution he called for.
5: A cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. A cry for survival comes from the planet itself, a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear. And now, a rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, that we must confront and we will defeat. To overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and secure the future of America, requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy, unity, unity.
0: For a model of unity, Mr. Biden might look to the African concept of Ubuntu as a way to heal the many broken relationships in America. Writing in an essay for the book The New Possible, South African physician and anti-apartheid activist Mampele Rampele explains how Ubuntu can bring communities together and support individuals at the same time. Dr. Rampele joins us now from Cape Town. Welcome to Living on Earth.
6: Thank you very much for having me and greetings to your audience.
0: So what are the principles of Ubuntu and, and why are you writing about it now?
6: The principles of Ubuntu are the original wisdom of all our common ancestors. Because remember, all human beings originated here in Africa. And it is that wisdom that our ancestors began to understand that the only way they can not only survive but thrive is by working together to relate to one another in a way that says, I am because you are. But also, they developed a very deep reverence for nature. So Ubuntu is not just about the interrelationships and interdependence between human beings, but also between human beings and all of nature's life.
0: I am because you are.
6: Yes, indeed.
0: In a broader sense... What is this I am because you are?
6: When I say I am because you are, I am saying to you, I will do everything that I know you need to thrive so that you can do the same to me because the best life insurance for any species in an ecosystem is contributing usefully to the well-being of other living species.
0: In the essay that you wrote, you say that you learned the tenets of Ubuntu from your elders growing up in a rural South African village in the province of Limpopo, not too far from There a lot of big animals over there at the national park. What did it look like growing up in that community?
6: Absolutely idyllic. We were at the foot of the Sotpansberg Mountains, and we had a huge extended family. You were taught the values. Of Ubuntu, not by saying you must do this, don't do that, by being told, "No, my dear child, a person does not do that." So, not to live by the values of Ubuntu is defining yourself out of the family of human beings. And when you do something great, they say, "Ah, that's what a person does." So, we were affirmed in this way of life. This philosophy of life that was all encompassing. And so this is the beauty of multi-generations growing up in the same household.
4: So
0: another way to summarize this perhaps is that looking through the lens of Ubuntu, there are no individuals, there are simply members.
6: There are individuals to the extent, and this is an important part, to the extent that you are recognized as in a very unique being with unique talents. And I was the tiniest. I could never do anything like run. or But I was made to believe that, no, 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 no. You have other things that you can contribute. And so my dad used to tell me, use your brain because you haven't got any physical abilities. So it wasn't that you were part of a collective that submerged your individuality, but you were taught that, Your talents and your individual will thrive within this collective, affirming Ubuntu network.
0: Now, one key concept of Ubuntu is affirmation. What exactly is affirmation in this context?
6: Affirmation is respect for people because they are human. And that respect is exhibited by treating other people the way you want to be treated. And it also is recognized by neuroscientists today that humiliation is the worst trauma you can visit upon another person. So affirmation is precisely to counter any suggestion of treating people in a way that humiliates them.
0: And the impact of being humiliated is as you say, devastating?
6: Absolutely devastating. Because unfortunately, one of the consequences of it is that the person humiliated loses self-respect, loses reverence for life. And because they are humiliated, they won't attack the attacker. They tend to attack those closest to them, and they tend to attack people who look like them. And of course, there is a lot of self-mutilation that happens, whether through drugs or through other forms of self-destruction.
0: Now, in your essay, you talk about how these things are passed from one generation to the next. How has humiliation had such an impact in Africa and, for that matter, in the United States for generation after generation? Who's been affected by this?
6: The trauma of humiliation visited upon ancestors those many years ago through slavery and just bad treatment of other human beings gets patterned into our genetic makeup. Without today's generations having experienced it, it gets awakened by any traumatic event. It's like the memory is in our blood, in our genes. And when we meet a traumatic experience, we remember and we react as if we are the ones who have just been enslaved or just been tortured. That pain endures from generation to generation unless, as we would say in my continent or in my country, it is ritualized into a healing process.
0: Dr. Rampele, you are perhaps one of the world's most famous widows, if I can put it that way. The father of your children was, was Steve Biko, one of the leaders of the Soweto uprising that began in 1976. He was killed viciously by the police the next year. How did the uprising in Soweto, which of course was key to the change in South Africa, how did this embody Ubuntu?
6: Well, the uprising in Soweto was actually not led by Steve or any of my generation. What we did was to inspire young people to believe in themselves through the Black Consciousness Movement. And that movement was simply saying, you are a beloved creature of God. No one has a right, because of the color of your skin, to treat you any less than you should be treated. But you have the power to not allow what other people think about you, to govern you. And it is a free mind that is the first step to freedom so you can be able to say no to your oppressor. And that's what happened with those young people in Soweto. Now, how does that tie up with Ubuntu? Of course, when we say, I am black and I'm proud, we are saying everybody, whatever the color, What matters is that you are human. We gave up on mimicry and went back to our roots, re-embraced Ubuntu and allowed that to be a new way of being. So the principles
0: of Ubuntu, of course, need to translate by culture to culture. How do you think Americans could adapt the principles of Ubuntu to our own problems?
6: The principles of Ubuntu are there in many cultures and in many languages. You don't have to call it that. But what you have to do is to recognize that deep down in all of you is that inextricable connectedness. Seminal moments in your history in the USA, they were when you got together, whether it's the march on Washington or... Even sad occasions where you were bearing your heroes, but also when you celebrate the coming into office of a new president, that's when the highest positive energy is in your country. Let's learn from that.
0: We've seen the beginning of the arrival of a set of vaccines that will allow humanity to to better combat this uh, pandemic. But, of course, addressing the disease is only part of truly healing. What should the world be doing now to take advantage of how COVID has shown how perilous the human condition is with our present set of behaviors?
6: I think COVID has opened our eyes to we cannot be healed, we cannot be well unless the ecosystem in which we are in, including the human community, is well. What The vaccine does is to give us a little break, an opportunity for those who are particularly the frontline workers to be able to help those who are already affected. But for the rest of us, if we get immunity, it's not the end of COVID. What scientists say is that we are likely to see more and more of these break ins from viruses that We have opened up their ecosystems by destroying the forest. We know that human beings and their immune systems function best when they feel loved, affirmed, and even in the poverty of material things. And so we now have an opportunity to reimagine a world where we see ourselves as part of nature, We are not saving nature. Nature will save itself. We have to save ourselves from this existential crisis by changing fundamentally the way we live, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to the rest of life. And that's the opportunity we have.
0: So before you go, Dr. Rampele, what words of comfort or advice do you have for those of us who are the most vulnerable As the flames from COVID still rage.
6: First thing to remember is that we are in this together and you are not alone. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. Your ancestors are with you and those who are yet to be born from your line are with you. Second, you are valuable. You are important because you are such a unique creature. and Your creator is with you. Third, you have the ability to do what it takes to meet these challenges of today by stretching your hand across the fence to your neighbor, to others around you, so that you can lend a hand and they'll lend a hand. It is when we work together as families, as neighborhoods, as people working together, as nations, and as a global community that we actually get to overcome.
0: South African physician and activist Mampele Rampele. Her essay on Ubuntu is in the book The New Possible. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Grace Callahan, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablo, Mark Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Casey Troost, and Yolanda Omari. We welcome our new intern, Paige Greenfield.
1: Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth.